Chrissy, come out! Nope, not doing it. Chrissy, that, my grandmother knitted that blanket. That's a family heirloom. And you'll get it once October is done. Oh, heck no. I am not going into Raccoon City without my security blanket. Thank you very large. What, the Cavalier vest doesn't fit you? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yes! No, you're not getting the blanket back until after Halloween. I cannot do a podcast with my host hiding under a blanket. The mic doesn't pick you up. I swear, if I catch this T-virus, I'm blaming you. You blame me for everything anyways. What's the difference? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome to Gaming Street Irregulars. I'm James Iris, joined by member of STARS, Chrissy Harding. I am part of STARS Team Omega. <laughs> Welcome, y'all. Welcome, everyone. Last week, we talked about Silent Hill, and now we're going to talk about their rival, Resident Evil. Yes, this was the breakthrough survival horror game franchise. This is what even though you could probably trace the genre's roots all the way back to the Atari 2600 game Haunted House, this mm-hmm. is the trope codifier of what we consider survival horror. Oh, yeah. When this game came out, published by Capcom, this game was just, it, it, it kind of made Capcom become more than just the Mega Man maker, even though they are known for other stuff. But well, At this point, Capcom was also Street Fighter. Yeah, but this kind of broke them out of like that that kind of like that what they were starting to get into. Like they were starting to be known as you you either if Capcom put out a game, it was some version of Mega Man or some version of Street Fighter in some way, shape, or form. And this game kind of took that and like went whoop for that game. For better or for worse. I like to think for better. <laughs> Like, this was something different at the time. It was, it is your normal, typical haunted house, scary mansion, stranded in its setup. I, actually, the game, this the, the movie this game reminds me of is Night of the Living Dead. Absolutely fair. But these are not traditional zombies we're dealing with. Oh, no. Oh, no. And in fact, even this game itself was supposed to be a remake. It was supposed to be a remake of an earlier game called Sweet Home. Okay. It was kind of first conceived as that by uh, Takoro Fujiwara, and it kind of developed into what is now known as Resident Evil, With and that was led by Shinji Mikami. Now, just to give you folks a little context for some of the cheesier aspects of Resident Evil, I present to you the PS1's Trumpet music so to speak chrissy i think you know the one. Oh, i know the one
Now, Chrissy's more well-versed in the history of this, but I do actually have a little bit of personal history with Resident Evil myself. Around 96, 97, the PlayStation was new, and some of my friends that I played Magic the Gathering with were big into this game. And I remember seeing it for the first time, and around then, I was spoiled by LucasArts Adventure Games with their really good, clever voice acting and scripting, and going into Resident Evil and hearing that voice work kind of drained some of the horror atmosphere from it. Which is fair. You have to... You, it, it, that is that is a very fair statement. This game definitely was not known for its voice acting. This game is definitely known for its jump scares, where with Silent Hill, it was more of an immersive experience... And the jump scares were there, but they weren't there kind of thing. It was kind of like you expected. You you knew they were coming, so they really weren't like a full scare. Where with this one, some of the things that happen in this game are definitely true jump scare situations. I can definitely say the dogs, the, the one dog scene is definitely one that sent many players up over their couches and behind it because of how unexpected it is. And I can guarantee you, we all have one point in time died in that hallway because of that jump scare. And that is actually probably the first big trigger warning we should make. If you are averse to violence against animals, yeah. Resident Evil is not the series for you. No, Even if the dogs are zombified and technically being ravaged by a virus, it's they're still doggos. They're still they're good st boys. They're still puppies. They're still my puppies. So... The best order to play, I think, any of the Resident Evil games is you do have to start with Resident Evil Zero, which did come out later. So Resident Evil obviously came out, but Resident Evil Zero actually takes place before Resident Evil. And it explains one of the characters in the game and what happened to her before she ended up in the mansion, and that is Rebecca Chambers, everyone's favorite junior medical officer who this was literally her first mission was to go out into the Arklay Mountains and try to figure out what the heck is going on there. And in the end, she is the only one who survives from Star's beta, t beta team. And this came out actually in uh, 20, uh, 2002. So this was definitely six years after the original. Yep, on the GameCube. Yep, and it came out on the GameCube. Yay! It was also a game you could play on Windows, um, PlayStation 3, 4, Xbox 360, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, and the Wii. Because um, they just keep re releasing it. And the idea behind this one is, this one actually explains how the virus kind of broke out in the mountains. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is Umbrella Corporation's fault. Yes, we are not making an umbrella statement when we say that. Nope. You know, it's pretty bad that we have that, like, on, like, speed button now. Like, it's like, we don't even need to wait to edit it, and we just go, boop, and there it is, the, and there's the music. <laughs> this is bad. So, on July 23rd, they even have a date down for this. Damn. On July 23rd of 1998, a train owned by the pharmaceutical company of Umbrella, called the Elliptic Express, came under attack by a swarm of leeches. I will, will let you all have that mental picture. Uh, the passengers and the crew were attacked, and a young mysterious man watches over the resulting chaos from the hillside. Two hours later, the Bravo team, 
sorry, I called them the beta team, it's Bravo, of the STARS uh, police force are sent to investigate a series of cannibalistic murders in the Arklay Mountains outside of Raccoon City. I would be tendering my resignation at that point if I was a member of STARS. I'd be like, rescuing people? On it. Going into a burning building? Sure. Having a standoff with a crazy man with a gun? Not a problem. Cannibalistic murders by zombified people? I'm out. I do want to just quickly toss in one thing. All right, thank you very much for not calling me Johnny Beta, Mama. <laughs> we had to do a Johnny Bravo joke. Sorry. We're, we're also cartoon nuts here. Uh, on the way to the scene, the helicopter has its injured failed and crash lands in the forest. Spoiler alert, it was uh, sabotaged by Albert Wesker. And anyone who knows the series knows that Albert Wesker just does not die. It's always Albert Wesker. Or a Wesker. Or a Wesker, because in Resident Evil 5, it actually is his sister who's causing the problems. Or is that six? No, that's five. Uh, no. Excuse me, did you say he has a sister? Yes, he does. No, you don't <laughs> want to date her. She's as crazy as he is. I promise um, that's the last Johnny Bob Bravo impression. Don't make promises you can't keep. For this podcast. Don't make promises you can't keep. You know it's going to come out again. It is in you. So, and you play, in, in other uh, Resident Evil games, you get to choose between which two protagonists you get to play. In this game, you don't. You play as Rebecca. And she kind of explores the train and learns that the train actually was sabotaged to crash. And we soon learn that, uh, yes, this was done by Albert Wesker and William Birkin, who you really don't get to meet meet until two but albert wesker and willie Bur william burton are like we're like friends at this point and work together so you get to kind of explore as rebecca you also learn who owns the mysterious mansion in one and that is dr james monroe one of the co-founders of umbrella and he was responsible for, for discovering the progenitor virus in the 1960s. And he started working on it as a potential bioweapon. There are three doctors in this game who we learn about. One is Dr. Spencer, who you learn more about in the latter half of the series. The other one is Dr. Ashford, whose son Alex Ashford took over. And you learn more about him in Code Veronica. Rebecca um, also meets up with a former Marine who was accused of murder. His name is Billy Cohen, and he helps her kind of survive this whole thing. We also learn that, yeah, uh, pretty much Monroe Spen and Spencer and Ashford just did not like each other. They created this company. They started to suddenly become very suspicious of each other. To the point that Albert Wesker and William Birkin actually were under Monroe and were lured away by Spencer. Kind of, he offered them more money, and so they kind of joined him and tried to kill Marcus. Which, unfortunately, Marcus at the time was injecting this progenitor virus into leeches. So when they killed him, the leeches decided to infect him, causing one part of the outbreak. And combining him with the queen leech, which you now have to kill. Once you kill Monroe, Rebecca and Billy part ways. Rebecca tells Billy she's going to mention that he died in the incident. And so no one can find him so he can live a free life. Uh, he leaves and Rebecca heads towards the mansion 
where her fellow uh, Bravo team members are supposed to be rendezvousing at. And this leads directly into Resident Evil. And before we get into that story, let's talk about how Resident Evil plays. Because this was kind of iconoclastic for the time. Mm-hmm. In that it Resident Evil control scheme is dubbed tank controls. Oh yeah, you're a tank in this game. Yeah, basically what this means is when you press up, you're going to move forward relative to the direction your character is facing. You're not going to move up like moving up in a Pac-Man game. Nope. Or like that. So this takes a little bit of getting used to. And especially if you haven't gotten the hang of it by the time you encounter your first zombie, you're going to die. Pretty much this game is called Hurry Up and Die. And if you do not master the controls, you can pretty much say tanks for nothing. Yeah, we use that a lot that we have that on its own repeat button. (laughs) So Resident Evil actually really did a lot. First, it was very well received. The other thing, too, it's actually repopulized a lot of zombie games and zombie stories from the late 90s onward. I'm looking at you, The House of the Dead. But it also renewed an interest in zombie films as well. Resident Evil eventually, it spawned into a multimedia franchise that includes films, comic books, novels, video games, and the likes. The other interesting thing at the time that we are doing this is right now they are actually remaking the Resident Evil franchise. The original Resident Evil franchise, it wasn't bad, but it it was kind of like Resident Evil. You mean the really, film franchise? The film franchise. Was Resident Evil pretty much a name only? I'm actually kind of excited. Um, as we are filming this today, I think the first trailer for Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City dropped. So that's kind of cool. Okay. Uh, the day we did Resident Evil, the first trailer dropped. It, it dropped on my YouTube suggestion list. I'm like, and it was like, just dropped 30 minutes ago. I'm like, <gasps> so hopefully this one will do the original game justice because the original game for as tropey as we would see it as now is actually a really good retelling of the mysterious crazy mansion in the middle of the woods that's overrun by zombies. It's pretty much a remake of that trope. So if Resident Evil were just zombies and jumping out at you and the giant spiders and the dogs and that, that'd be one thing. But the problem with the game in terms of getting you scared is you have to manage your inventory space. Do I carry the kerosene, for instance, to prevent the zombies from coming back if I don't get lucky with headshots? And thus take up a space in my inventory that could be used to hold keys or healing items or the pieces we need to solve puzzles in this game. Can I successfully run back and forth between the inventory storage boxes when a zombie I thought I was done with might just come back? Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of the tension in this game lies. And also the other thing with this that most people don't talk about, you have a very limited number of saves. Yes, each save is tied to an item you can find in the game, a an ink cartridge for a typewriter. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you out there are like, what's a typewriter? Google it, because you just made me feel old. 
Unfortunately, I think a good chunk of our audience would mostly know typewriters from Resident Evil. This is fair. So, the other interesting thing I think about Resident Evil that makes it stand out from the usual, oh my god, we're stuck in a mansion, ah! Sorry about that. Is the fact that the characters themselves have their own quirks and flaws, and the twists in this game. Oh my god. So, like, so when you start Resident Evil, you get to pick from two Alpha Team members, Chris Redfield or Jill Valentine. Um, and they kind of each have their own special skills to help you. Yeah, Jill has a lockpick, so she can get places more easily, and a somewhat larger inventory, but she's not as durable as Chris Redfield. Yeah, Jill has more firepower, too. So when she shoots something, it does, it does more damage. Chris has limited firepower, but he can take more hits from enemies. And he has a smaller uh, inventory. He can only hold six items versus Jill's eight. The other differences between the two is the supporting characters. When you play Jill, your supporting person is Barry Burton, who is the team's weapon expert. Uh, when you play Chris, uh, you get Rebecca Chambers, who is the surviving member of the Bravo team, who is the medical expert. So she heals him. So you get also different supports as well. Barry gives Jill more weapons. Rebecca gives you more heals. So you kind of have to pick your playing style. Both playing styles are tank, which is go in and shoot shit up. There, there is no wizard, there is no cleric in this version of a wizard or cleric in this game. You are there to blow stuff up, and that's about the extent of it. And not die. And in the uh, poorly translated uh, first iteration of Resident Evil, this translates to Jill being described as the master of unlocking. I kid mm -hmm. you not, here's the original audio clip. Jill, here's a lockpick. It might be handy if you, the master of unlocking, take it with you. So, as we said in Resident Evil Zero, the date is July 23rd of 1998. In this game, it's July 24th, so this takes place about a day later, when a series of bizarre murders occur in the outskirts of the fictional Midwestern town of Raccoon City. Uh, the STARS team is assigned to investigate. First, Bravo team goes out, but then contact is lost with them. They kind of crash, unbeknownst at the time to everybody else. Uh, that crash was actually planned by Albert Wesker. He sabotaged their endings. Um, so then his team, which is the Alpha team, goes out to find the Bravo team. So... They eventually locate the crashed helicopter and they land at the site where they're suddenly attacked by monstrous dogs, killing uh, the first team member, which is Joseph Cross. And while we didn't get enough time to know Joe, Joe's death is kind of instrumental to starting the events of the game. Because Joe dies, Brad Vickers, who is the team's pilot, panics and takes off, leaving them there. And the remaining team members, Chris Redfield, Jill Valentine, Albert Wesker and Barry Burton are kind of running for their lives at this point from a bunch of monstrous, zombified good boys. Mm. I'm sorry. I could they could be zombified and I'd still be like, who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? And I'd probably get my throat ripped out. Yep. And as they get in there, they kind of depending on who you pick, you make it into the mansion or you don't. You can, if you play Chris, 
you get separated from the team before you get into the mansion, and then you have to find a way to break into the mansion. If you play Jill, you get inside. But at this point, everyone's like, we need to find out what happened to the Bravo team. So they split up in the mansion, and you find out what happened to the Bravo team. And it's not pretty. You eventually come across their captain, um, Enrico Morani, who actually tells you that there is a mole in your team. There's a spy. There's a traitor. Uh, before he can tell you who it is, he, d- he gets shot and killed. Naturally. Naturally. Because why would anyone allow us to have that kind of, you know, you wouldn't have a second half of the game. So after that, you kind of explore the mansion and you eventually learn that Umbrella, they're shady as hell. Well, that makes sense. After all, if it's not raining, what good is an umbrella besides shade? That one actually was kind of funny. I don't know why we got crickets on that one. It was actually pretty good. You could be my umbrella, Ella, Ella. Okay, all done. So so you explore the mansion, and you have a lot of crazy shit happen to you. One of the things that you do run into is a young lady by the name of Lisa Trevor, and she is probably the most tragic story, I think, one of the more tragic stories in Resident Evil. Her father designed the mansion for James Mon- Dr. James Monroe. And he invited her, you know, her father, her mother, and her to the mansion to celebrate the creation of this absolutely gorgeous place and amazing as it is. And her parents are killed and she's kidnapped and experimented on. And then when uh, Monroe dies, she is somehow let loose from her captivity, and she pretty much starts attacking everything in sight. She's pretty much lost her humanity. Um, She has been stuck in this mansion since the 70s. So, and remember, in this time period, it's 1998. So this poor little girl has spent her whole life in a cage in this mansion being experimented on and is eventually turned into a a monstrosity. In fact, there's some that believe she's actually the prototype for the tyrant who is like the main bad guy, you know, the main thing trying to kill you in the games. Mm -hmm. So eventually you discover who the double agent is. And it is Albert Wesker, who throughout this whole game looks like a jerk anyways with his sung. You're in the middle of the night and he is still wearing sunglasses. That is the classic sign of a douchebag. Wow, that song was wrong. Which one? I wear my sunglasses at night so I can, so I can, etc. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, no. No, he doesn't have that excuse. He, he, he's, it, this is, this is a character who's trying to be, you know, he's the top dog. He's the captain of the team. Dude, you can take your sunglasses off. You're in a house. It's well lit. You don't need them. So... This is also was the start of one of my friends saying that any man, you, you know you can't trust a character in the video game if he's wearing sunglasses in a house. He's, she's like, that, mm. that's, that's the classic sign that that is a Wesker. So you have to battle Wesker. And no, you actually don't battle Wesker. So Wesker, uh, eventually when you realize what happened and all this other crap, you actually also learn that he's kind of blackmailed Barry into helping him a little bit. So he kind of forces Barry to become a turncoat by threatening his family 
and Barry has two daughters, and one of the daughters will actually show up in a um, in a later game too. But eventually, Barry kind of, you know, backstabs, you know, Wesker because he's like, no, this isn't right. Kind of finds his backbone. But you have to. F- so Wesker decides to let loose the tyrant. Yes, the tyrant is the first of many, many monstrous super soldiers that Umbrella and associated organizations will unleash through the course of this series. Yep. And he unleashes it to kill the remaining stars members. The purpose of this whole entire incident at this mansion in the woods, you soon you soon realize is he is trying to gather combat data on the tyrant so he can market it to the US government as a super soldier. So that is the purpose of all of these people coming out here and the sabotaging of the train and all of that was to get uh, scientific data on how this thing fares in a fight. And considering the stars team is supposed to be the best of the best, who better than to try it on than the best of the best? Wow, Dr. Erskine, this guy is not. Nope. So unfortunately, when he kind of unleashes the tyrant... Wesker just doesn't learn, I feel like. He always unleashes the monster, and he's always the first thing the monster kills. Unless he's the monster. Then he kind of can't kill himself. But it would make it interesting in a game. So he unleashes this tyrant, and this tyrant kills him. And if you notice, and if you were, if you could see me, I was doing quotation marks. Because this guy just does not know when to die. They dropped him in a volcano later on in the series, and I honestly, I have bets that that sucker's going to be back at some point. Because... They've mm. they've done all types of stuff to him, and somehow this character somehow returns every. It's reaching single... a Tekken level of escalation from the sound of it. Oh, I think Tekken was inspired by him. Possibly, as I I remember one instance where the Mishima family are being launched into space. Yep. Yeah. That that was after like when he kept like the third time Wesker comes back, and we're like, what? the hell like it's like it's kind of to the point it's like Mega Man, where they could tell you oh it was dr kosak and part of it's like no it it's still wily it's this person no it's still wily we all i think wesker is is uh resident evil's dr wily you can hide him by all these names it's still wily this also game is also the beginning of the rivalry between albert wesker and chris redfield which would play out in subsequent games too I swear to God, the 90s was like, with horror games, was like the epit, like the beginning of the very tired out thing of multiple endings. Essentially, yeah. Because this game has four endings. Yeah, and they're basically variations on the same theme. These are not as diverse as the Silent Hill endings from what I can see. Yeah, and they depend on whether or not you save other people in the game. So the best ending is both Chris and Jill escape the mansion. They eventually radio Brad and convince him to come back to pick him up, which I really hope that once they got in the helicopter and got away, that everyone took a turn to punch Brad Hmm. for running away. So the best ending is the two is both Chris and Jill escape the mansion alongside a third stars member. Depending on who your player character is, it could be Barry or Rebecca. Um, after defeating the t- defeating the tyrant and destroying the mansion, the second best ending is your player character, whether it's Chris or Jill, escapes along with their partner after defeating the tyrant and destroying the mansion. 
The second worst ending is, has Chris or Jill escaping as the only two survivors with the mansion still intact and the tyrant running around in the forest? And the worst ending is you are the sole survivor and the mansion is still there and the tyrant is playing Bigfoot in the woods. That's not a Bigfoot I want to meet. You don't want to meet I, I, ju- I just want to stick to grainy pictures of that thing. Thank you very much. So let's go into a little bit. So we talked about the the game itself. We talked a little bit about development history. Let's talk about the inspirations for this game. You mean Sweet Home. Well, that's one. The other inspiration is actually Stephen King. There he is again. Go figure. <laughs> Come on. He is like he's like one of the three like fathers of horror. First one's Poe, second one is uh, Lovecraft, third one is King. There's a fourth one that's Clive Barker, for those of you out there who think King Stephen King is too tame. So tell me a little bit about how King influenced the game then. So one of the um, the backgrounds to the mansion, if you really look at it, is actually inspired by the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. Okay. So, and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Here are these group of characters. They're isolated in this place, no way out, with strange stuff going on around them. They're coming, you know, there's a dark history to this place. You know, there's characters that can help you that other characters obviously don't see. You don't really see, you know, no one else, other than when you play Chris, you really, no one else really uh, interacts with Rebecca. And when you're Jill, very rarely does, like, Chris actually address Barry. So you have that. And just this idea of an overarching evil. And the only way to defeat the evil is technically to destroy the mansion itself. In the original book, The Shining, you had to destroy, they had to destroy the hotel to, to put an end to it. So there's those. Also, another game at the time that was helpful to this, um, influencing especially the cinematic viewpoint of the cameras, was Alone in the Dark. Oh, yes. Yes, Alone in the Dark was a very influential PC series. and Probably the direct father of modern survival horror. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was kind of that influenced how they wanted to do the viewpoint in the game. Because originally, and I think this would have changed a lot, of how Resident Evil played was they were thinking of doing it as a first-person shooter game instead of doing kind of the cinematic behind-the-character-over-the-character kind of viewpoint, which I think, one, makes it a little bit of an easier of a gameplay, and two, I to me, I think that kind of brings up the horror more because you can actually, like, you actually watch, like, the scene take place. It's like watching a movie. Versus if you're first person, if you're not facing the direction the action is taking place and you don't see it. And if you notice, I'm not really talking a lot about the music or the sound in the game because it really wasn't that good. I feel like they dropped the ball on the sound design. Now, as for that other influence, I want to talk about my experience with Sweet Home. (laughs) Which probably comes as a surprising statement to you, Chrissy, knowing how averse I am to gore and the genuinely creepier side of horror. I can also see why you got sucked into it, because it is an RPG game. Well, first let me describe what Sweet Home is. It it was a 1989 movie released in Japan 
on January of that year, where a small film crew visits an old abandoned mansion of a famous artist. They want to restore and publish the paintings that were left behind. The paranormal events of surrounding the artist's wife and their toddler child start throwing everything awry. And my first experience of knowing about this movie and its subsequent video game adaptation was viewing the Crontendo series on YouTube, which is a chronological review of every Famicom and NES game ever released. And mm-hmm. without a lick of warning, this the guy who does these, Dr. Sparkle, interspersed actual clips of the movie into this thing. And I'm like, <laughs> what the? Like, no, no, God, darn it! No, 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 no! So, thanks a lot, Dr. Sparkle. You owe me a therapy bill. I feel bad I hid your blanket now. (laughs) Not bad enough to return it, though. I didn't think so. (laughs) So, Sweet Home got adapted into an RPG for the Famicom, taking a lot of the imagery of the movie, transitioning it reasonably successfully, and it was a fairly well-received game. For the time, and of course, it was well regarded enough that those, the remake project on the PlayStation is what eventually became Resident Evil. Yeah, and and the cool thing with Sweet Home was it, it was actually a Metrovania game in its style of play. So it was one of those games that you could explore to your heart's content. It wasn't linear. It didn't say, okay, now you have to go to point B. Now you have to go here. It lets you explore and organically uncover the story to the game itself. And there were a variety. This one is actually really a more traditional horror game because you had like zombies, ghosts. Uh, My friend Sam will vouch for the most evil thing in creation ever is dolls. You know, you're fighting Mm -hmm. them. And you have five characters, but the game was... Like, so when a character dies, they stay dead. They're dead. They're done. You, you, can't, you can't do anything. But the game was forgiving in a sense that any items that can serve the same purpose of the dead character could be found near their corpse. For example, if the team nurse um, Akiko dies, the team can find pill bottles to help cure ailments around her. Okay. Uh, and it also, if you can keep all five characters alive, I guess that you get the best ending. Depending on how many characters died, depending on wh- how many characters remain alive after the defeat of the final boss, will give you one of the five total, total of five different endings. So depending on how good you are at staying alive, yeah. It's interesting is because the storyline to this game is a little bit more similar. Resident Evil is most definitely a very convoluted storyline of why the why the mansion becomes infected with zombies, you know, and eventually boils down to evil pharmaceutical company doing human experimentation with a plant based bacteria parasite that they probably shouldn't be dealing playing with. And by the way. mm -hmm. If any of you out there try to connect this to anything happening in modern times. Please don't. Yeah, at this point in time, this that's on you. This actually isn't an allegory for anything. It is kind of the... The Revenant Evil series is a what if. 
is definitely a what if series. What if zombies were real? How would you bioengineer a zombie? And there are plants in different parts of the world that when ingested will turn you into a zombie. Um, that's very big in Caribbean hoodoo culture, the idea of a zombie. If you want to look more into that, uh, Monstrum on YouTube uh, does a really good explanation into um, the differences between um, Romero zombies and traditional zombies. And it's entertaining to watch, too, because the young lady who runs the Monstrum series is actually really... She's um, she's an amazing speaker. She can talk all day and I'll listen to her. She's very good at what she does. She's a, she, um, she studies like folklore and stuff. So with Resident Evil, it's kind of like you have to break out the chalkboard to, to kind of connect all the red lines. Where with Sweet Home, it's pretty plain and simple. There was an artist. He had a wife. Their chi- he had a child. The child was killed. child had a ghost. The mother went crazy and decided to give her dead son playmates. She killed people. Eek. And then she commits suicide because she feels guilty about what she's doing because she's killing other people's children. And now she's stuck in the mansion trying to kill you. So, yeah. A little messed up. Just a tiny bit. Yeah. Not quite Silent Hill levels of messed up, but... Not quite Silent Hill... Two levels of messed up. Oh, no, Um, no, no. I think that will always remain the most messed up game ever made. And yet probably the the one that you could probably easily write a paper on. An actual, like, academic thesis style, published in a a peer-reviewed journal style paper on. Well, that may be the most messed up game ever officially published. There's one game I can think of that did not see official light of day that I would qualify as being more messed up. If it is the one I think it is, we do not need to say it. I do not want to give that game any more publicity than it already has as a quote-unquote for, forbidden game. We'll talk about it offline then. That is fair. I, there's just that game there. I don't want to give the publisher any credit. I don't know who decided that was a good concept for a game. But whoever they are needs to be, to quote Garfield, the cartoon cat, needs to be drug out in the street and shot. So let's talk about some of the things that got left on the cutting room floor of Resident Evil. Yes. Because probably one of the most interesting things that got left out that was in a later prototype version, cooperative gameplay. I know. That would have been so cool to be able to play with a friend and and taking each one of the characters. I don't know. That was one of the ones I'm not quite sure why it got dropped. But, well, no, I can um. Mikami did say that it wasn't good enough. It wasn't up to his level of what he wanted it to be. And knowing his level, knowing knowing other games he worked on and and his level of oh, I'm trying to think of his level of how he wants things to be. If he didn't think it was good enough in the game, he wouldn't put it in there. And I mean, it would have been great, but if I can understand that if he sat there and was like, nope, we can't make this work to the level I want it. This is not going to be fun for the players. It's too clunky. It's too this. I can understand why they cut it out. Yeah, at that time, 3D uh, polygonal gameplay was still in its infancy, and they were already having to use pre-rendered 2D backgrounds to depict what they wanted and depicted how they wanted it to look. Mm -hmm. 
So I can understand having two player characters along with who knows how many zombies might have created some serious lag or other performance issues. Yeah. The other thing that was taken out too was, um, and, but, and was advertised and it was advertised that they would have it was the graveyard. Oh yes. And that was in uh, maximum council actually did a feature and they had the graveyard in there with a slightly different version of this final boss. Uh, eventually, which it was is of removed, course tyrant, which is of course tyrant. Uh, the graveyard was removed. It was definitely, it was eventually put into the 2002 remake. There were guest houses and towers. Those were taken out and replaced with like a guard house and a lab. The other thing that was taken out was real-time weapon changing. That might have made the game a little easier, actually, which I don't think is what they wanted. No, they wanted to keep it kind of that tension. Of, I mean, because that's, that's the main part of a horror game is that is that level of tension of will you make it or won't you make it? They didn't use any um, motion capture either, and they actually, which was surprising because they did have their own motion capture studio at Capcom. Instead, they kind of used book references and videos to kind of study how people, spiders, and all the other animals that are in the game, like plants and stuff, how they move. And speaking of things that got cut, uh, the one last thing I want to mention are one of the characters that got dropped in the conceptual stage. There was a gentleman named Dewey. Mm -hmm. who was supposed to be African-American and was intended to be comic relief. Capcom, no, no, that's a, that was a bad idea in the first place. And obviously they kept the black comic (laughs) relief in a horror movie is such a tired cliche at this point. It's, it's, I don't want to be coming off as some pedantic, politically correct nut job, but at the same time, that's a little bit racist. Well, yeah, and and like like they said, they cut it. It was actually like there. It was a conceived character that was never fully fleshed out. Would have been awesome to see a, a um a version of him in in the later versions, totally. But yeah, no, not in this case. But you got to remember, also, it was nineteen ninety six. Um, Scream had just come out that was making fun of horror tropes. You know, the standard horror tropes of the virgin, the you know the the jock. All of that. Yeah, I'm just a little bit suspicious of media coming out of Japan when they invoke dark-skinned characters because oh, yeah. they they still have a tendency to use blackface mm-hmm. and they don't understand the harm behind those archetypes. And it's, it's it just they, awkward. It is, yeah, it isn't that they don't understand the harm. They decide... they. Japan always seems to have a sense of culture's superiority. I mean that too. So they're so it's not so much they didn't understand the the stereotype, it's just they didn't they were they were trained not to care, which is wrong. But yeah, Dewey was one of the original character was a character that was um conceived and then cut. The other one was Galzer, which was a which was a cyborg character. <laughs> And, now uh, we should was, mention that modern Japan is starting to turn a corner a little bit in the, in that regard regarding other cultures. I, I think we're seeing more actually decent portrayals of dark skinned characters in anime now. So that we, that helps. Well, yeah, they're learning. You got to remember they were such an isolated culture for so long. They're on a freaking island. Oh, believe me, I remember. Yeah. So they they. 
Though you're probably yeah. saying that for the for the audience. For the audience themselves. My remember is Japan was very ice. Now it's like a world. It's like a global culture now, and it is. They're slowly starting to. They are much more now than they were in the 80s and the 90s. Understanding other cultures better and having more respect for them. And I'm not saying that that all Japanese are like this. They're not. I, I have a very good friend of mine who lives in Japan. He is probably one of the biggest, like even though he lives in Japan, he is still very much involved in American um, social justice because he lived. Oh, good you know, for he, him. Yeah, he was born here. He moved to Japan, but he still is like Black Lives Matter. You need to take care of the sickest and the poorest of your population. As he puts it, he goes, it's just not about you. So he's still very heavily involved in that. Um, and he even, and I would love to have him on here. I just don't know if he would, if, if he could ever make it because of the time difference. Yeah, that that's, that's a big thing. One of us would have to be staying up super late. Yeah. And he, cause I would love to have him talk about the change. There's such a cultural change in the gaming culture in Japan that it's amazing to watch how fast it happened with the respect to an increase in P the, in the diversity, the biodiversity of gaming and how much it's just exploded among young Japanese people. So, okay. That was one. So let's get ourselves back on topic. Uh, Indeed. Because uh, folks did not tune in to hear our politics. They tuned in to talk about resident evil. And do you know what the original name of resident evil was supposed to be? Biohazard. Indeed. And it still is in Japan. Yeah, it is still called that in Japan is Biohazard. That's what the series is known as. This is how much uh, Fujiwara actually said that he was not expecting this game to explode like it did. He really did not expect it. He thought it would sell only 200,000 copies and because it was he to him he felt like it just fit a niche audience. And it went on to sell millions. Well, I, I think the gaming audience at the time was ready for it. You can see kind of a maturation from people who grew up with the Atari 2600 and then the NES and then the 16-bit era. People thought we'd outgrow video games, but we didn't. So when Resident Evil came along, there was a ready late teen slash early adult audience who wanted these more mature experiences and there it was. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, is um, one of the big things that people run into with this game, too, and you said it earlier, was, was the voice acting. That was too close. You were almost a Jill sandwich. When this game was made, originally the game was actually made with English voice actors with Japanese captions and subtitles. Because, and the reason it was done that way was, so you have American actors trying to read a script that was initially written in Japanese and then translated over into English. And translations back in the 90s were not as good as they are today. Not even close. No, no. A, a, a great example of that is Piccolo from Dragon Ball. There's a line in the original Dragon Ball where he says, I am the god of death in Japan. But in English, they changed it to, I am the devil. Ooh, that's, that's not great. 
No, so this is, so to give you an idea of how translation worked back then, it was very shoddy at best. Mm. So I can give them a pass on the voice acting because you were having, so you had them write the script in, in, in Japanese to have someone probably the equivalent of using Google Translate to take it and put it into English and then handing it to native English speakers to speak the lines and then turn around and take those lines and put Japanese captions underneath. Wow. That, that, that just seems like a, at least one step too many. Yeah. And here's the thing is, is that the reason why they did that was the Japanese actors that they used, Mikami found the quality of their import, of their performance inadequate for what he wanted. So he pretty much told the native Japanese speakers, you suck. Oh, considering he wasn't himself a native English speaker, that would probably explain why some of the stuff sounded like it did too. Oh, yeah. And you got to remember is, is that the whole entire development team of Resident Evil was Japanese. So they... Again, that's something I know. Yeah, but for other people out there, because we're we're used to games having a Japanese staff and an an English, you know, a Japanese or American, Japanese or British, Japanese or... Like, we're used to it being, like, an international game having two separate teams to handle the localization. In the first Resident Evil's case... There was no second international team to help with the localization. It was all them trying to localize a game for a culture that they probably didn't fully understand. Any last thoughts on this game? Uh, I would like to say in result of everything that we talked about, this game, that's why I think Capcom, it was such a surprise hit to Capcom. They were not expecting it to do as well as it did. I like Resident Evil, the first game. I haven't played the remake version. I've seen clips of it, and it looks really good. If you like jump scares and that kind of stuff and, you know, be having that tension of flicking through your inventory to get the right weapon while you don't know if that zombie on the ground is going to get back up again and eat you, this is a good game. Definitely one I would recommend playing. Obviously, don't play it with the lights off in the middle of the city where you're going to hear a lot of noise because you will jump. Fair enough. And on that note, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll have our contact information, this day in gaming history, and everything else we ended our episodes with. So stay tuned. Want to support the Irregulars? Head over to www.patreon.com backslash FC3ROC. We're part of the media division of Flower City Comic Con, based in Rochester, New York. We're a nonprofit group. Everything we make off of Patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events, from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests. If you pledge any amount, even a slim dollar, you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, 
And if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc dot org and me at j-a-m-e-s at fc3roc dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Christy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool and begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind. So if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. Okay, so, this day in gaming history. Now, my usual source for this Moby Games is pretty accurate. But this one, I have to raise a little bit of a question mark, because this goes back to 1977, when release dates for video games were, eh, whatever. No, mm-hmm. Nobody really kept track. But people may have been able to pin this down as the most likely date the release of the initial wave of Atari 2600 video games. That's Air Sea Battle, Basic Math, Blackjack, Combat, Indy 500, Starship, Street Racer, Surround, and Video Olympics. That last one basically being uh, the home console iteration of Pong for the 2600. That, if this is indeed accurate, then that makes this probably one of the most important dates in video game history, period. Because the 2600 was the big dominant force in home consoles in the 70s going into the early 80s. And combat on its own is a big, big deal. That was the first deathmatch game. That makes sense. Yeah, you're right. It, I, I was thinking of so. Is it? Was it? Yeah, that was the first deathmatch game. Um, I don't ever. I don't think we ever had it on my console. I'm sure. I'm sure there's people out there who did. I never played it. I've only seen like every so often, like someone does kind of the equivalent of uh, Pemi's Arcade Funhouse, mm-hmm. and and shows like the old Atari games. And I just kind of sit there, I'm like, oh my god. And at the time, I thought that was the greatest thing ever. Like, I have a moment of like, wow, I'm old. Now, if you want more information on those games, I wholeheartedly recommend the YouTube series Atari Archives, which is a chronological game-by-game presentation of as close as the creator can get to the release schedule of Atari 2600 titles. And each game gets its own video with discussion of what contemporary consoles to the 2600 would have had that would have compared to those games. There were a lot of blackjack games on those early gaming machines. Well, it was easy. I mean, Jack Black is easy to do. It's, it's, it's kind of, so apparently not as easy to say blackjack. Blackjack. Yeah. You just said Jack Black a second ago. Jack Black. (laughs) Jack Black. Here we go. Sponsor us, Jack Black. Sponsor us. 
<laughs> this is your supplemental messaging. Brought to you by Mighty Monkey Corporation. Huh. No, but so what do we have coming up, James? Well, next week we are going to be talking uh, the Cthulhu Mythos. Yay! And the week after that, it will be Castlevania and its various remakes. Ooh, and who do we have coming on for that one? I don't think we have anybody coming on for that one specifically. Oh, I but thought I do we know had... we're trying to get Mike Cusey for the Cthulhu Mythos one. Oh, we are trying. Oh, so Mike's going to come for Cthulhu? Yay! That's the plan. We just got to remind him that we're hoping to record next weekend. Yeah, that's on you. We should get Pemmy to come back for ca- come on for Castlevania too. If he can find a point in his busy schedule. Fair enough. So, also, what else is coming up with speaking of Pemmy? What else is coming up that you and Pemmy have planned for the rest of this month to celebrate Halloween? Well, tomorrow on the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast, we are taking a brief look at the Darkstalkers cartoon, of mm. course based on Capcom's fighting game series and Oh, I've got opinions. You always have opinions. Well, this this is one of those I've got significantly strong opinions. Ooh. Normally, I'm just I'm open to debate, but this time, uh-uh. uh oh, Capcom, you pissed him off. And on October 29th, mm-hmm. the Pemi and James Cartoon Podcast will bring the Hanna Barbera quasi classic Drac Pack to light Ooh. of day. I'm noticing a theme here. Yep, all Halloweeny stuff. <laughs> You're still not getting your blanket back. That's going to be a long month. Eh, but until it. next time, folks, I'm James Irish. On behalf of Chrissy Harding, Hi, game everyone. on. Bye. <laughs>